This is an APTA podcast. Welcome to PTJ Author Interviews. PTJ Editor-in-Chief Alan Jetty talks with authors about the most interesting and sometimes surprising aspects of their work. And now, Dr. Jetty. I want to welcome listeners to this latest PTJ podcast. This is Alan Jetty, Editor-in-Chief of PTJ. And today I'm very pleased to have as my guest, Ms. Phoebe Simpson. Phoebe is a doctoral candidate in the School of Physiotherapy and Exercise Science at Curtin University in Perth, Western Australia. So welcome, Phoebe. Thank you very much, Alan. Today we're going to talk about a study. It's entitled Training for Physical Therapists in the Delivery of Individualized Biopsychosocial Interventions to Treat Musculoskeletal Pain. This is a scoping review that Phoebe and her colleagues did, and they investigated the reporting, the training, and the assessment of competency, as well as fidelity checking of biopsychosocial interventions delivered by physical therapists. And the goal was to help inform future research and facilitate more widespread and better implementation of biopsychosocial interventions for persons with musculoskeletal pain. So as I mentioned earlier, before we started our podcast, I think this is a really important area of investigation. And I wondered if if you might start, Phoebe, by talking a little bit about what led you into this area of investigation. And I know this is part of your dissertation work. So tell us a little bit about why you got into this. Absolutely. So I'm a clinical physiotherapist and I was finding through my clinical practice, I'd been trained in quite a biomedical style, you would say. So I was grappling with these um, questions of how to shift my own practice towards a biopsychosocial approach And I was coming across patients in clinical practice that had some really complex pain problems that I didn't really feel equipped to be able to treat. And so I wanted to understand the process of change that needed to occur, um, changing from that biomedical to a biopsychosocial approach. And how does a physio like me upskill in that way? So I wanted to delve a little bit deeper into the data and also contribute to that. And I decided to get involved in research at that time. Um, I'd been out in clinical practice about five years. So, yeah, just felt it was time for me to broaden what I was doing. Um, And I decided to pursue a PhD investigating the experiences of physiotherapists, learning and applying a biopsychosocial approach. The team I'm working with is running a fantastic randomised control trial. Um, and they are looking at um, a biopsychosocial approach called cognitive functional therapy. And part of understanding the journey that those clinicians go on is what I'm studying. Um, And so we wanted to see before we studied the physiotherapist, what was the existing data to show how we should be training or what has been done in training physiotherapists to be able to deliver a biopsychosocial approach And that was the birth of this review. Great. Yeah, that's really interesting. You mentioned in your remarks just now and also in your article that you were trained in the more traditional biomedical model. I was too. 
-hmm. And you note that many um, entry-level programs still take that approach. Why do you think it has been so um, slow in shifting from the biomedical to the more biopsychosocial model? I think a big factor is inertia. The history of physiotherapy is that we're based on an impairment focus. Um, and that means treating symptoms with technical skills rather than a person-centred biopsychosocial approach that considers all of the complexity of a person's presentation and targets care towards them. The, that is the history. And I think what the profession has done and what we found in the review was kind of tried to bolt on these psychosocial um, factors and treatments. And it's not really holistic or integrative in the approach that they've taken. And the profession is also slow to change. As I said, inertia is a big factor and it takes a while for a big monolith to flex and change in that way. Um, then what we have is entry-level programs where we kind of sprinkle a little bit of pain science and do a little bit of psychosocial communication. But fundamentally, at its core, it's based on impairments. We treat it, we assess it, um, and we teach it in that way. And I think that's really evident in how students are assessed in these undergraduate programs where, you know, I remember being asked, it's a discrete physical performance of um, palpate a certain spinal level or hands-on treatment of a stiff joint. Um, so it's all these discrete impairment-focused tasks and we don't really get skilled at dealing with the whole person that we see in front of us. I must say it's discouraging to hear you say that because what you're describing is how I was educated back in the 1970s. And I would hope that um, that has changed more than it appears that it has. Yeah. Let's talk about some of the studies that you reviewed. I, I think you reviewed 35 different studies in your paper and you make note of that there was a wide variety of training approaches for delivering these interventions. Could you talk about some of the, the major types of training that you found across these studies? Absolutely. So it's actually tricky because half of the studies didn't really report adequately. Um, so we don't really know. And of those that did report, well, we, we have two camps as we see it. One camp is the majority, which were really quite light on with the training. And that was predominantly things like lectures or seminars, which are didactic training, um, being brief. They range from about four hours, well, from four hours up to two days with no experiential learning or supervision or feedback on skills. And then the other camp was uh, probably the minority and there were training was more intensive. We had workshops with fantastic experiential learning um, and it role play or time with patients. Um, they were longer and ranged from two days up to 14 days, the more extensive programs. They also had feedback and supervision of skills and time to integrate skills clinically. Training resource such as a manual was um, in, seven, in 17 studies that was used and training to assess change in psychosocial factors 
by the treating physical therapist was reported in 10 studies, which really isn't much out of 35, um, and only seven used screening questionnaires. But what I found probably most concerning was only three of these studies out of the 35 actually used real patients in the training. And I think that's problematic because if we put it in context, what these studies were trying to do is provide interventions. So we're training physiotherapists to be ready to provide this intervention. And yet they're not using real patients to train the physios. And I think if I was a patient um, with chronic or disabling musculoskeletal pain, I would hope if I was involved in a trial that the therapist I'd seen would have been assessed on someone with my condition before they're then implementing that treatment. Yeah. Well, you know, you mentioned in the beginning that there's an overall problem of a lack of information in these studies of exactly what kind of training was done and the content of that training. And as a journal editor, I have to acknowledge that we run into that a lot. Really? Yeah, we Mm -hmm. do. And, And you have thoughts on how we can improve that problem in the field? We really need some reporting guidelines. And we grappled with this. And in our paper, we proposed a checklist based on what we know from the literature around training uh, of physiotherapists and behaviour change. Um, And that training looks at four key elements as we see it. Number one is defining the biopsychosocial intervention. This is really important to outline the content and components the dosage, and also where the scope of practice lies because we are testing scope of practice when we're moving towards these more biopsychosocial interventions. With that knowledge and that reporting, we can then titrate the training and train towards competency. So really people need to be reporting the trainers, the content, um, the format and structure and the type of training that people underwent, the experiential learning Um, The approach to the skill development, was there supervision, was there feedback, adaptation, um, and then we need achieving competency and that needs to be reported. Was competency assessed and how was it assessed? Was it using a checklist? Um, And that should really match the level of training required um, for the intervention. And then finally, We need support and fidelity during the intervention period to also be reported because it's no good that the physios were competent, but then they may drift off. We need to see that checklists were used or mentoring was used and that this replicated um, the competency assessment. So that's, that's what's needed. It strikes me from a journal perspective that we have to really encourage people to provide supplemental information to their articles because with the um, the word limits that authors are faced with, it's going to be difficult to do that. But with electronic publishing, there's no reason why we can't provide that kind of supplemental information. I completely agree. And we did, we did see that. And we also saw that in some of the more extensive training programs, they did publish a secondary paper around their training. 
And that also indicates that there are nuances to learning this biopsychosocial approach that it is new. And we, you know, it should be being reported because we need to understand how we train physiotherapists to be able to do this. Now, you you contrasted the more didactic with the more experiential approaches to training. And I'm very familiar with that um, in the field of public health, where that's been going on for quite some time. Mm -hmm. Do we have good evidence in the literature about the relative efficacy of those different approaches to training? Your bias is very clear that you feel the experiential would be much more effective. Do we know that that's the case in terms of evidence? It's a little bit thin in the evidence, but but there is evidence there. So what we know in physiotherapy is we do need longer training duration with multiple training sessions, and that's supported by the work of Berube and Overmere. We also have support for experiential learning with supervision and feedback from expert trainers. That's supported by the work of Zidorov, which is a 2013 paper. Christina Bryant, has she published in PTJ in 2014 and had some fantastic work on the need for extensive ongoing supervision by a psychologist and rigorous use of well-defined performance criteria to assess competence. And they they probably all support my bias again, Alan. Sure. But okay, but there is some evidence, and and uh, I appreciate your your pointing that out. Yes, there is. I think what we what we saw in our review is that training in biopsychosocial interventions really involves behaviour change for clinicians. And while we couldn't find a lot of literature on that for physiotherapists, we did leverage off what psychologists have been doing. And they have a lot of literature in this area yep. around behaviour change. Um, and, and there's also a lot of knowledge translation work that's coming out. So what's most effective is going to be sustained intervention. A light touch in this area is not going to be enough. Yep. We really need to you know, have experiential learning, supervision, and quite extensive post-training mentoring. And that's what psychologists have been doing for many years with their research. So if we're broadening our scope of practice towards the psychosocial factors, I think we do need to leverage off that kind of research that has already been done. Yeah, I couldn't, the- I couldn't agree with you more, Phoebe. Yeah. You know, back back in the 90s, we were doing cognitive behavioral uh, interventions uh, with uh, older individuals with exercise. And mm-hmm. our whole approach was based on work from cognitive psychology. And as you point out, they've been doing it for a very long time. This is not new. It's new to physiotherapy, but it's not really new to healthcare in general. Absolutely right. That's what we found. And um, I think that integration of the knowledge that is there is really important. As you said, it's been done. It's not new. Um, So, yeah, learning from other other groups, Occupational therapists have been doing it for a long time as well. So learning collaboratively, I think, is really important. And that is where my PhD is. That's what I'm investigating, the process of learning and implementation of physiotherapists, um, delivering a biopsychosocial approach. So I do hope that when my dissertation's done, I have more work to add to this field. That's great. I look forward to seeing that. 
you know, the bottom line is we want these biopsychosocial interventions to be efficacious and effective. And obviously training is important. Do you think, I mean, as I look at the literature, it's not as positive as one would like in terms of the efficaciousness of biopsychosocial interventions. Mm-hmm. To what degree do you think the lack of adequate training is behind some of that? I think it's a large factor. And when we're looking at the efficacy, as you said, of these biopsychosocial interventions, that's something that struck me when I was first looking at this field is I hadn't realised that we were only really seeing small to moderate effect sizes in biopsychosocial approaches. And understanding why that's occurred, there's many factors. You know, it could be the intervention itself. It could be the training. um, It could be the fidelity. But looking at the level of competence um, assessment that had been undertaken across the board and the training that we had seen across the board in the studies we reviewed in the scoping review, the training was in the majority of cases, I would say underdosed. A lot of key factors of the training were missing. And then with the competency, only 12 out of the 35 studies actually assessed competency. And only one of those studies reported using a competency checklist against the behaviours that they were looking for. So it's really unclear and we're lacking evidence, I'd say, except for that one, whether the physical therapists were in fact competent post-training and able to deliver the interventions at a level that is required under the demands of clinical practice. It makes perfect sense that more competence in delivering the intervention should lead to a more efficacious intervention And it doesn't sound like we have a lot of literature to support that hypothesis as yet. No, not as yet. Yeah, not as yet. It's my hope that you and other investigators begin to develop that that literature and that evidence, because I think it's really important uh, to begin to show that. I agree. And I think... Having, as I said, having reporting guidelines will be key so that we can at least assess how the training was done, how thoroughly it was done, and if that potentially did have an impact on the trial. That's the first step of knowledge that we need. And, yeah, moving forward from there, then we'll have better knowledge to understand, well, this is how we could potentially train. Well, Phoebe, I want to thank you for taking the time out of your early morning to share with our listeners uh, the study that you published in PTJ. I would encourage our listeners to take a look at the scoping review. I think it's extremely well done, and it really addresses some important issues in our work, both in our research as well as the clinical implications. So thank you. Thank you very much for your time. This is an APTA podcast.